Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from a big overseas sourcing company on how to prepare your hardware product for manufacturing. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back everyone. Today I'm very excited to introduce Mike Deegan to the show. Mike is Vice President at Global Link Sourcing. He has been working for 10 years on sourcing products overseas and consulting on products for 15 years before that. Global Link has helped with manufacturing well over 100 products for hardware companies, leading to tens of millions of their sourced products selling around the world. Today, Mike is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can understand how to prepare your product's development to get it ready for presentation to overseas manufacturing partners, and the pros and cons between sourcing through an agency and sourcing direct with the manufacturer in China and elsewhere. Now, on to the episode. Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you on today. I know you're bouncing around hotels. I guess you're in Utah right now on the road doing manufacturing, sourcing, sales, working with various companies to uh, get their products made overseas. Exactly. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on the road. I'm a bit old school like that. I still like the face-to-face meeting. Since the pandemic, I think that's gone away. And I think it's really important still to be out there face-to-face with people. Well, and you've been doing this for over 25 years. Before we jump into it, just give us a history of uh, how you got to sourcing literally well over a hundred products in the consumer product space in your career. Global Link Sourcing, which is who I work for, started nearly 20 years ago by our CEO, Jean-Luc Guenet. We really started simple and it was a very small company and we really started more in the packaging space than we do in small electronics. And as you know, every small electronic product comes in great packaging. If you're going to spend 40, 50, $100, it's gonna, it better come in a nice looking box, right? So we really focused on that early on. I came on at about 10 years later and we were at a point where we were really doing a great job for several large companies. I like to tell this story. One of them was SC Johnson and, and we were doing some packaging, some other products for them. And they actually were having a problem finding a factory that could handle the volume in China for a small electronic device. And they came to us. It was quite a phone call that we weren't expecting. Let's just put it that way. And they said, hey, can you help out? And by this point, we had a footprint in China. We had people there that worked for us. They helped with sourcing great factories, project management, and quality control. So we had those pieces in place. We went out and identified five factories for them. And they chose one. And we managed that relationship with the manufacturer for several years and produced literally millions and millions of these of these devices for them. And it made us realize in a hurry that with the right partners, we can look and begin this small device manufacturing for electronics. And that really opened up a new division for us, if you will. So since then, we've grown rapidly, countless numbers of companies here in the US and Canada. Uh, That's incredible. It takes a lot of work to get a product into production. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's a big myth with a lot of really early stage inventors and ideators where they think, okay, I've got this great idea. I'm just going to take it over to a factory and get it manufactured. And of course, you very quickly learn that it doesn't work like that. So then you take the next step. You say, well, I'm going to get it designed. Then they start with design and then hope to go to production. But the reality is it doesn't even nearly start there. To produce, 
You need a great, well-thought-out, tried, tested, true product that's been prototyped and beat up and ready to go in every different way for the producer to make a great product. So from your perspective, I want to understand from you what it takes to bring a great product, a new product to you so that you can do your best work in sourcing a great factory to actually produce this. It's a topic I love to talk about. So this is great. The number one thing that we deal with when people come to us and say, hey, can you help us make X, whatever that is, is having a design that we can truly use to go manufacture with. I can't tell you how many people have done the work. They've taken it from the napkin and they've hired a designer and their product looks great. But that designer really didn't know anything about the tooling involved in order to make it work or the electronics inside and the footprint related to the electronics that have to go inside that device. And so now we're designing around the outside and the inside at the same time, and it's clunky and it just never works well. So then we have to bring in another design firm that designs for manufacturing to help that out. Because the last thing you want to do is go to a factory in China or whatever, wherever you're offshoring it to and have them do that work for you. They're great at being told what to do. They'll do a great job with it. They're not great at the creative side of things. So whatever you want to create and whatever you want to have your product do, all of that needs to be mapped out and ready for manufacturing before you take it to the factory. That's a really interesting point too, because I find a lot of folks have a bit of a misunderstanding of what the differences between engineering and creativity are and assume that, okay, well, I've got a pretty good, let's say visual or industrial design flushed out. It's just just the look and feel of the product. No, it's exactly what I want. Just manufacture it. Yeah. But there's a lot of creativity that actually goes into how you manufacture it and how it's engineered. That is probably the bulk of the work. All we do at Maco Design is generally designed for manufacturing. That's it. And one of the big fallacies there is that you could just design something that looks pretty and all of a sudden run it to a manufacturer. Well, it doesn't work if you're actually intending to produce in the long run. So on the flip side, what you have to do is look at everything from an engineering standpoint, in addition to a functionality standpoint, you find that perfect intersection right in the middle where you've got the function you want, but also the underlying engineering for how it's going to work. And in addition, how it's actually going to be manufactured. That's a big piece of the puzzle. And that's where arguably I would say, 80% of the actual design and engineering hours go into. 20% goes into the conceptualization and the feature sets and the visualization. 80% goes into that prototyping, engineering, breaking it, repeat, rinse that process until you've ironed through all of, like you say, the creative elements and of course the engineering elements to make a manufacturable product. Yeah. Actually, I was on a call today with a client. They're decided to move forward on a new product and they said, you know, we'll have some conceptual designs ready to go for you in the next few weeks. And I said, well, time out here. You don't even know what the engine inside this unit looks like in order to make it do what you want it to do. You know, what is that circuit board footprint? What is the, all of the electrical components footprint that needs to go inside the rechargeable battery, all those things have to be figured out, at least mapped out to some extent where we at least have somewhat of a size to begin with before you can come to me with a design. Cart before the horse, right? You were mentioning something too before the call I thought was very interesting. You get a lot of folks that are in a rush. And they say, okay, look, I've got this, you know, half cobbled together thing. I can't finish prototyping and engineering it and doing all the proper things because I'm in a rush and I need to get to market. And you were talking to somebody that knows a game, has been in it for a while, has tried that a number of times, but this time finally said, okay, I've got the concept. I'm going to give myself until 2024 
which from today's date is well over a year and change, mm-hmm. just to get to that start of the manufacturing point. So finally, after trying and succeeding over time, but through a lot of failure, they figured yeah. out that it does take time to properly design, engineer, prototype, and prepare a product for the production standpoint. If I told you how much this client has spent on air freight to get their product here fast because they don't plan ahead and they wind up doing everything in a hurry, you'd probably fall out of your chair. When I came on board, they were already doing some manufacturing. We came in and and really helped educate them on the process and realistic timetables. And it's taken years, literally, to get the people inside that company to realize that you can't bring a product to market in nine months and expect it to do well. It's a year minimum, usually a year and a half, sometimes two years. You hit on a point I want to hit on is that that testing is something that everybody wants to blow by and just get it to market. There's so many things, but all of that can be ironed out if you give yourself enough time to do the product the right way. It's something, especially in hardware, you can't bug fix it after. There's no patch fix to Mm -hmm. update your software. So people get caught up with this whole concept of MVP, which is minimum viable product. I believe it's a great concept for hardware, just spun in a slightly different light. In the software world, the reason MVP kind of got a bad name to it is because it meant get whatever basic and poorly done thing you can out to market and then tweak and fix and refine over time. It's just basically race to the end. Well, you could do that in software because you can patch things and fix things in real time, live, as opposed to hardware, which is when you sell that thing, you tool up and you sell that thing, you cannot fix it. It's in the client's hands. They've paid for it. And that is the final object. So what we always try and focus on, especially for a new product, is keeping the first design of the original product that's going to go to market relatively simple so that you can put a lot of time on design, engineering, and prototyping rinse and repeat of a simpler product so that when you go to tool, when you're working with bike here and they're trying to find the best factories, they're going to be able to build a great product at a reasonable price with a smaller number of parts leading to less defects, less warranty issues, and arguably the product that's easier to sell because it's more specific. From there, you can think about all these extra features and benefits, but quality and hardware is tough to achieve as it is. If you add more features, you exponentially increase the complexity of that. 100%. And you lengthen out so many factors to it. Most people get into manufacturing and they think they know what they want. And maybe they've designed it to a certain extent. You use the term feature creep a lot, which I think is a fantastic term. But the engineering involved, especially if they haven't done it on the front end, the engineering for five features versus one or two could take six months to figure out. And time is money and people want to get their product out. So now not only do you have the issue of this process being drawn out, but people saying, hey, I need to get it to market. So then what do they do from the prototyping and testing phase? You know, they skip through it. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, the beauty about hardware too is so much of the value of this time that you're putting into is creating a tremendous amount of equity in your product business. Time in product development is there for a reason. If people are working on the product, discovering problems, finding opportunities, ironing out the kinks, creating something that is truly great, not just mediocre, Mm -hmm. that greatness is arguably worth 10 or 100 times more than what mediocre is, especially in hardware for the things we talked about, because a poor quality product simply will not succeed in this day and age. So if you do spend the time and the effort, and of course, the money, and it's tough, it is a bit of a grind. It's more of a marathon than a sprint. But if you spend the time to do it right from the 
on set and follow the correct set of processes, not only does it make it easier to go to production, but you're going to have a far better product at the end. And it's much easier to raise funding. Let's say money is a difficulty. It's much easier to raise funding with a high quality, simple product that's in market than a very feature-rich product that's still halfway through prototyping because you can't afford to get something so complicated to a production state. Yeah. Two points on that. One, back to the features and those things. I don't know if you see this. I certainly see this where people think they have a great idea and they've thought about this so much and they've added these features to their product, but it's a great idea to them and they're very close to it and they can't see the pitfalls that may be there from the consumer standpoint. And so when you utilize a design team that gets it right and understands the consumer and how the consumer is going to react with this device, you really get that feedback early on. When I see people that have these great ideas and they go direct to manufacturing themselves, how many of those do you see fail? Unfortunately, because it's just their idea. They didn't really want any other input or ask for any other input. And we give input if asked from a manufacturing side. I think they can bring so much to the table to avoid those issues. Yeah. And I want to talk tactically about the actual process as well, because it's critical that you have the right people doing the right thing along a design process. For your typical mass manufactured physical consumer electronic product, it takes anywhere between six people if it does not have electronics to up to 10 people if it has electronics with unique specific skill sets, at least here at Macro Design, to get a product from that initial sketch on a napkin through all the steps of design, engineering, breadboarding the electronics, the circuit design, the firmware programming, the materials engineering, the prototype engineering, the manufacturing engineering, engineering, and then the final specification documents. If it's got the electronics, like I say, about 10 people without it, you're probably around five or six people. Now that's just in the design and development portion, getting you to that pre-production state. You don't want to be wasting a manufacturer's time with skill sets that are not related specifically to the production of parts at the best quality and at the lowest price possible. What we want to do at the end of doing all the design for manufacturing functionality is have a very clearly defined set of processes. We want to have, of course, a 3D CAD file, not just in raw format, but also in any format that they might have within their possible production facility. We want to have the 2D line drawings called out for the certain facilities that still only work on 2D drawings or certain parts <laughs> that it's easier to do in that format. Sure. We want to have functionality callouts through design rendering. So they understand very clearly how the product actually works and why the parts go together the way they do. We want our material specifications, our bill of materials with each individual unique part, how that actually goes in and what projected material. Because when we have these five pieces of documentation ready for the factory, what we want to do when talking to a team like yours, Mike, or the engineers that are on your squad or the engineers from the manufacturers themselves, we want to be spending time figuring out the best way to manufacture each one of those parts. Because if we are wasting most of our conversations and our efforts on design ideas and tweakings and bug fixes, we're not going to spend any time on the incredible value that you and the engineering team can provide on costing down those parts and ensuring they're the best quality possible. You mentioned exactly the point that popped in my head while, while you're saying all that is the cost. There's no way a factory is going to be able to give you a hard cost on anything without great engineer drawings with all of the callouts that you mentioned. It's just impossible. They're going to guess, they're going to pad the heck out of that price to make sure they cover themselves. And then still on top of that, they're probably going to come back and say, hey, by the way, this is more expensive than what we thought it was going to be, or this tooling is going to be more complicated than we thought it was going to be because they didn't know coming into it because it was poorly designed to begin with. So everybody wants to find out what my cost is going to be. 
But without a great starting point from the design, you're not going to find out what that is. So you're not going to get an accurate price anyway. That's a really good point, Mike. And I want to talk about one thing before we let you go here in terms of sourcing direct from China versus using sourcing agencies and the pros and cons to each of those, because that's also one of the things that I see quite often is even if somebody does all the work to get the proper designs done, goes through all the engineering and prototyping, has their final spec documentation, get this connotation that, oh, you know what, I'm just going to pop onto Alibaba. I saw somebody that does something similar and get this done, or I'm just going to fly over to China to a trade show and hope that I nail it. Obviously, from your perspective, and of course, from ours, it doesn't work like that. It's extremely difficult to roll the dice like that. But I want to hear from your perspective, being in the sourcing world for quite a few years, what are the pros and cons that you see from your end? I never am surprised when someone says to me, oh, I went on Alibaba and it looks like I can have my product made for X because there's 15 manufacturers on there that do something similar. And they even emailed me right away and on and on. And the first thing I always say is, are you dealing with a trading company or are you dealing with an actual manufacturer? And how do you know? And I could tell you countless stories about trading companies and all the disasters there, but that's the first place that you have to start is identifying a true manufacturer. Once you do that, all of the things that go into qualifying a factory, we look at China and we grade factories on an A to a D scale. And we only work with A and maybe a few B plus if we have to factories, because if this is a product that needs to go into a target or it's going to have a, a Disney character on it, or whatever it is, all of the certifications and inspections that have to happen for those companies, you have to be able to pass that. So that's going to happen in an A and a B factory. You don't know what you're getting on, on Alibaba. It could be a C and a D factory. And most of them are, unfortunately. You get into the quality control piece of it. Once you get into manufacturing, most people have no idea the, the quality control of a manufacturer, and especially if it's your first product, and what things to look for. And if you're not a part of that helping create that quality control process, you're missing out and they're going to send you a QC report that has all A's on it and everything's going to be fantastic. One of the things that I say this a lot to people that want to source themselves, and of course, it's what we do. And it's easy for me to talk against sourcing yourself. But at the end of the day, you're going to spend so much time. You're going to be on calls at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night because of the time zone. You're going to have the language barriers and you're going to have all of the things that you spend time on. And let's say that you do get a great product delivered. And if you've done your homework, you absolutely can. But let's say you do. How much time have you spent on that that you could have spent on your business? You're working in your business instead of on your business. You could have been selling or marketing or hiring more staff to do the right things. Because at the end of the day, it's going to take you hundreds of hours in order to get a product made. And that's where our team kind of comes in. A, we know what factories to go to with certain products. B, we won't work with a factory unless they allow our QC people in to make sure it's done right from the beginning. Yeah, and that's um, physically in the factory itself, boots on the ground there too, which is a big difference. Absolutely, absolutely. And we project and handhold these projects with our project managers from beginning to end. And whether it's nightly or weekly phone calls to make sure things are on track. On top of that, if you're going to source it yourself, then there's two more points I want to dig in on is the logistics of it. Now you get to work on either hiring someone to get it here for you or dealing with all that yourself. And the last thing that most people don't realize is the financial side of it. So if you're going to go source something yourself, typically it's going to be 30% down to start the project. And then when that project is ready to ship, you're going to pay in full 
before it leaves port in China or Vietnam or wherever it's coming from. And now with the shipping climate that we all get to live in now, eight weeks to get it unloaded at the dock, and then however long it takes to get it to you or your warehouse, and then it has to get out to market. So think about that. Eight weeks from when you paid the bill, let's give it another three weeks to get it to you. If you're selling it to Target, they're going to want to pay you on 90-day terms. So you may not see your dollars back for six months. And that's something that sourcing companies like ourselves really help our clients out on. And that's sometimes that's the biggest reason they choose us. At least they say so, because we can help stretch their dollars out a little bit. You guys are also one of the bigger sourcing companies. So you have that financial ability to kind of float those differences as well. Not all sourcing companies do do that as a value on. So I appreciate that highlight. I think one of the big things too that you mentioned, but you glazed over it pretty quickly is being able to simply discover what is truly a factory versus a whole layered effect of traders and wholesalers and distributors and sub-traders. The stuff that you see on Alibaba primarily is multiple layers, six, seven, eight layers deep from actual factory themselves. These are also people who basically are just resellers of products. So what happens is when you reach out to these folks in general, of course, there's exceptions to the rule, but when you reach out to them, you're talking to somebody who sells and probably at a very low level, somebody very low level at an organization that is multiple layers back from the actual factory. That organization is buying from some wholesaler that's buying from a factory distributor that's buying from like a factory conglomerate that's buying from the factory themselves. So what happens when you call them is they get excited and they say, well, I might be able to get a nice commission here, a payout. Of course, they call their boss who calls their boss's boss and so on. Everybody's trying to get a 10 or a 15% cut along the way. Not only is it a financial issue because now you've got five or six layers of people each taking a percentage cut on top of each other. On top of that, you've got this crazy communication barrier because you've got to have this communication chain going back and forth, up and down every time you are sending something back and forth. So obviously, as you get more advanced at sourcing, you can find your way, but it takes a long time to go from just a first-time sourcing person trying to find a new factory. In addition, you've got generally for any kind of mass manufactured consumer part, especially if it's got electronics in it, you've got multiple different factories that you're going to need to collaborate with a lot of the time. So it further complicates this massive interactive web much easier just to send it to the experts who know who the folks are, who have pre-vetted these facilities, who know how to talk directly to the general manager or even the executive or even sometimes ownership level of these factories. Let those past relationships of these people work in your favor as an inventor getting your first project off the line because it's their hundredth time doing it on the sourcing side. Absolutely. And and digging in on that a little bit more, I'll tell a quick little funny story. So our CEO was in China and back when we could go, we were there five, six, seven times a year. And he was there and there was a project that we were working on that we couldn't find within our normal factory realm, we couldn't find someone for. So we reached out to a new factory and we had a little inkling that it was a trading company, tried to do as much background on it. And we wound up saying, hey, we're going to come over. Can you just take us to your factory? And we'd like to inspect it. So they're driving down the road and we've got the quote unquote factory rep in the front seat with our Chinese driver driving. And he doesn't know how to get to the factory because he doesn't work at the factory. He doesn't work for the factory. He's never (laughs) been to the factory before. And he's calling someone asking for directions and hoping that us guys in the back who don't speak the language don't know what's going on. Of course, our driver told us exactly what was going on. What you mentioned, those layers, there's so many layers from a trading company standpoint. And the other thing to that, 
is that if you do have success getting your product made, it happens to be through a trading company. And I've, I've had conversations with people multiple times where they've had success for container number one and container number two, and then container number three comes and they open it up and there's an issue with the product. And it's because what that trading company does is every time you reorder, they put every part out for bid that they possibly can. And they're going to choose the cheapest factory to work with for components, for packaging, whatever it may be. And people don't understand why that third order that fourth order comes in completely different than what it did before. Which brings me to my last little point. And when you do have an issue, there's not a lot that you can do. If you open up a container that you've already paid for four months previous, and there's an issue, there's not a lot of recourse. You know, they're going to say, hey, we'll make it up on your next order. For small startups and small companies, there may not be a next order. This may be something that ruins you. So using sourcing companies that are based in the United States or Canada, the onus is on them to deliver a good product. And when you pay your bill to the sourcing company, if it's not right, it's on the sourcing company to go make that right. So it creates some some safety there in that relationship. Yeah, very powerful. I think for almost all startups or even scale-ups in the hardware space, this really isn't something that you should be tackling yourself. As we heard Mike say, one of their big clients is SC Johnson. They have dozens or even hundreds potentially of boots on the ground themselves in China, and they are still utilizing subject matter experts within specific manufacturing sectors to do this work for them. So as a startup, I can assure you that this point in the game, even nearly to the number of resources and experience required to generally self-produce. So it's a heck of a lot easier. And hopefully if you're working with a company on the design side, like Maco Design or some other reputable organization, they can help you with connecting with these sorts of folks that know the subject matter expertise within the product they're designing for production. And that's a big difference in the design world too. Traditionally, industrial design primarily is visual ideation design. Very rarely is it designed for manufacturing. That generally happens later or with the company's internal division or whatever else. So that's why you've got to be very careful as well. When you're working with your design and engineering partner, make sure you have those six to 10 people on the team that you're working with. Obviously, they're not. it's not six to 10 people working full time, but you need all of that expertise weighed in at some point or another throughout the project between design, engineering, multiple rounds of prototyping, pre-production specking, and then managing the production engineering process in the end. If you're producing a product for the first time, it's important that you have all these things and then make sure that you are working with somebody like Mike's firm so that you can smooth out that manufacturing process in the end, because that's where you start to make money. In that regards, Mike, just before I let you go, for folks that are interested in doing their production sourcing with you, where can they go to learn more and how can they get in touch with you on LinkedIn or whatnot? Mike Deegan, D-E-I-G-A-N. And on LinkedIn, Mike at globallinksourcing.com. Globalink is our company. You can find a lot of information, of course, on our website. Reach out at love to chat. And here's the thing. I know you guys are very collaborative in this way. We're always happy to help when it comes to if it's something that we don't manufacture, that we're not good at manufacturing. But we've been doing this long enough to where we probably know somebody that does, or we know a factory that does. So we're happy to help out because all that goodness comes back around usually. Mike, much appreciated for your words of wisdom today. Thanks for being on the show. We'll talk again soon. So much fun. Thanks for chatting with me. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over 
to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.